The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. Chinese exports post their biggest decline since the onset of the pandemic, plunging more than 14% in July, while imports also come in much worse than anticipated. Wall Street snaps back with the Nasdaq and the S&P 500 ending four-day losing streaks as hopes for a soft landing take hold. We'll discuss the U.S. market action with Haven Capital Management's Kyle Bass at 10 a.m. CET. The Bank of England's chief economist warns food price inflation will only fall as far as 10% this year as a fresh survey shows UK retail sales at the lowest level in 11 months. And SoftBank eyes return to quarterly profits after two straight years of losses with Masayoshi Sun's group set to see a boost from its tech investments, i.e. AI investments. The first of the big data sets rolling through this week and it is more disappointing news out of China. Imports and exports both fell double digits in the month of July, missing forecasts and accelerating losses from the month prior. Exports declined by 14.5%, led by a more than 20% plunge in shipments to both the United States and also to Europe. Total imports also created falling by 12.4% on the year versus expectations for a fall of just 5%. Well, meantime, let's just take a look at that market reaction as they digest the data. And you can see it is a mixed picture. We've had a little bit of a push high now on the Shanghai market uh, in particular. So trimming some of the losses, but flatlining, as you can see, at 3269. But it is uh, crucially, it is a green arrow at this stage. The Hong Kong market still suffering losses. We're down almost 1.4% or 260 plus points on the Hong Kong market. Some of the other majors in the region, you can see Australia, the so-called China proxy, looking at uh, the resource. Uh, rich uh, state of that country. You can see about a tenth of a percent higher at this stage. The reading on the China data for the Japanese stock market is also a slight improving picture, modestly firmer by about a quarter of one percent. A quick look at the yuan and the reaction on the local currency at this point. You can see dollar trades are firmer versus the Chinese currency that is slipping in the uh, fallout from this data point today. Let's get some thoughts on what we're just seeing. Alicia Garcia Herrero is the adjunct professor at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Thank you very much for joining us today. This is a big one for the market to digest. Already a lot of caution as to whether China can grow at around a 5% rate this year. What are the implications of the data rolling through for the third quarter? Simply that it's going to be harder to reach that target because at this point in time, which is actually quite difficult because imports have fallen over 14%, but actually exports have fallen even more. That means that for once, demand from the rest of the world is detracting uh, to, to China's growth. And that's going to make that target even harder. 
If you can just pinpoint uh, some of the issues here, I mean, we've been talking on the channel a lot about the geopolitics, the pressure that's been applied from the United States to some of its partners to de-risk from China, as well as some of the implications around technology and the race towards the most advanced technology on the planet. There's that issue. There's also concerns around the a balance sheet recession that China is facing. Just walk us through some of the concerns that we're still seeing around the China economy. Yes, well, of course, uh, imports from the U.S. have fallen more than average. So it's about 23%. That's a big fall in imports from the U.S. So you can see that that's much more than the U.S. containing containing China technologically, because that would be imports into China. Yeah, I mean, um, for example, chips are also coming down on the import side, but much less, 17%. So it's more about U.S. demand not being there. This is about anything this is from toys to you know it, it's a massive reduction and and this is about preferences it's not only about the u.s behavior u.s government behavior so we need to realize that second thing even imports from russia are falling eight percent um so so it's basically the global demand not being there for china that's one thing and on the import side china is reducing imports from uh, energy as well. It's not only semiconductors. So there's two things here. One is the geopolitics, which explains a little bit of what's happening, but a lot is actually lack of demand globally. Also Chinese demand and global demand. And that's what, uh, what is affecting the numbers. And that's really, really worrisome for China because China is the factory of the world. And and those factories can't really work. That's why we've seen so very, very poor uh, data on factory uh, uh, factory expectations, PMI, etc. The demand isn't there. So it's going to be very hard for China this year. Alicia, good morning. Then we joining in this conversation. When I break down the numbers, the drop in the exports uh, has been less than the drop in the imports. So to my mind, uh, the problem is more about domestic demand. Even if you look at the overall trade numbers, there's been an expansion, uh, a beat versus estimates uh, at $80 billion uh, for the total trade surplus on the month gone by. Uh, even with the U.S., month on month, actually, the trade surplus has inched higher. I just want to understand what does this mean in terms of incremental policy measures uh, that the market would be expecting from uh, the authorities, fiscal or monetary at this stage, given that they have to also deal with the rate differential? Well, the first thing we need to realize is that the rally there that was there because of the stimulus uh, announcements in, in July, very early August is over. Um, if you look at the RMB, it's 7.11. I mean, it's, it's back to where it was basically. And so this means that either they make this stimulus more credible with more specific measures, and that means a fiscal stimulus, because so far what we have had is support from the private sector, basically. I mean, a wonderful calls on the real estate sector, a little bit on the auto sector, uh, more subsidies, but but in essence, it's, it's the private sector coming back. And we realize that it is not enough with this trade data. So, so I think either China announces a much bigger stimulus with consequences for its public debt, which is already 100% of GDP, or I think the market will indeed turn after these numbers because it's very clear that that the situation is not yet is not yet uh, enough. Basically, the, the growth stimulus, the stimulus is not enough for growth to either reach the target or, more importantly be there in 2024, which is a hard year. I think 2023, five, 
5% can be can be there. But what about 2024? Uh, that's what the market is asking uh, quite clearly. Oh, absolutely. I think it's the long-term trend that uh, the market is worried about, not just uh, the growth for 2023. Alicia, the next in-line data point is going to be uh, the inflation print coming out of China on Wednesday, which is a CPI. And you also have uh, U.S. inflation and core inflation readings out on Thursday. And obviously, there's a big divergence there. Uh, Do you think that uh, the, the disinflationary forces in China, deflation in China, is a major worry uh, that could be exported out? Well, I mean, we we know there is this inflation in China. Um, However, mm, the data we saw today points to weaker demand. And and that, in a way, um, helps because the type of inflation or disinflation that China has is about excess supply. It's basically the manufacturing sector producing things that cannot be sold either for overseas or, you know. So what, what we know that is, yes, the demand isn't there. So, so w- because also PMI was weak, I mean, the question is, is, is the supply weak enough for the demand that is so weak? And that's what we're going to see with the inflation data. Um, it, it, I think I'm hoping that it won't be worse because that would be worrisome and that will, it will remain more or less stagnant at the current level. That's what I'm hoping for China. Yeah. Um, bear in mind that this is good. However, no matter what is good news for the world. Yeah. At the end of the day, China exports a third of intermediate goods into the world. If inflation is very low in China, that's only helping your inflation numbers for the U.S. or anywhere else. So, so in that regard, I think we need to realize this is double-edged sword. It's not good for China, that low number, inflation number, it's good for the world. Alicia, a lot of questions as to how the data will be covered this week because there was a report circling that uh, the word deflation is a taboo subject now in China. How sensitive is uh, the uh, country at this point to commentary around deflation and the use of it? Yeah. Well, I have to say we're not yet in deflation mode in China because um, that's only producer uh, price index, the producer price index. I remember 2015, the producer price price index was was growing negatively more than now. And, and we didn't actually use deflation at the time for China. It's it's basically very, very stagnant inflation, I would call it. How it's going to cover, I don't know. I think, you know, it, it, we will need to be careful, but we, we have to say what's going on. And I think what's going on is that basically, and again, I mean, let's not forget, if China had very high inflation, we would all be talking about inflation it probably would be really negative as well, because for the world, this is a very, very bad news. So I think what we need to realize is what are the causes behind? And what we know is that this is a demand-driven uh, stagnant prices in China because the demand isn't there now externally as the, the export data shows, let alone internally, which we knew from before that the demand wasn't there. So it's a demand problem. We can call it deflation. I think it would be exaggerated at the current juncture. Alicia, the, the mindset here, though, is that if people think prices are falling in future, then they're not going to buy a product or a service now because they're going to wait for the price to be cheaper down the track. That is quite the opposite of what we're talking about in Western economies at this point. Couldn't it be self-fulfilling, though, even if you don't want to put a deflation label on it, that if some cut back on uh, some of the expenditure and then they think, well, the environment will become better on pricing down the track, then you do have deflation. That, that's just how it materializes itself. Yes, but that's exactly what I wanted to to point out, that I don't think China is there. I don't think China's uh, CPI data is so bad 
that people are still already thinking, wow, in, in a year it's going to be 2% less because it isn't 2% less CPI. And 2% is not enough to make that argument. What may be happening though, and this is producer price inflation. This is what's happening in China. I'm, um, you know, like a, upstream producer i can be i can be producing iron ore well i know that i'm going to sell my iron ore cheaper that is producer price so so i'm basically not going to produce because my margin is already too low and that means that production is coming out in china because the demand isn't there so it's a volume issue it's a volume issue so far and that's that i'm not arguing that's any better this means that it's very hard to see. Basically, uh, industrial profits going up in China, they are highly negative, double digit because of this. And this also means that those industries upstream especially are not investing. So our fixed asset investment is very low in China as well. So this is basically the mechanism so far. The other mechanism would happen when CPI becomes negative, at least I would say below 1%. And that's we saw that in Japan. I don't think we're there in China yet. We could, but we're not. We're still in this volume type upstream sector situation. But just extending Karen's argument, this time around for July CPI, the number is expected to come in at a minus 0.4%. I know you're saying that unless it goes uh, below 1%, it's not a major concern. But the fact is consumer spending, consumer sentiment, consumer confidence, uh, youth unemployment uh, are all a big concern in China. And so what's to say that, you know, that's going to be a reality uh, not so far out in the future? Yes, absolutely. I mean, so again, I mean, what we are seeing is stagnant disposable income, high youth unemployment, lack of interest for demand. Maybe it's not because you think prices will be so much lower next year. The lack of interest is there because basically you're not earning more. Your prospects for the future are very negative. Thus, you wait to consume. It's the same out, it's the same uh basically outcome. But I'm to say maybe it's not because you think, wow, it's going to be 0.4% lower. It's still not low enough, in my view, to, to make that argument. But the but the outcome, as you say, is the same. You're not consuming. You're consuming less than expected, and that's that's of course what is dragging also those uh, producers yeah, in the factories not to produce because they also know that there's no external demand. Alicia, that's where China is. Today. We've got to go. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate your commentary on the Chinese economy. Alicia Garcia Herrera, who is the adjunct professor, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology. Well, for more analysis on the latest trade figures and potential policy measures, you can check out Evelyn Chang's piece on cnbc.com. And on a programming note, uh, don't miss our conversation with Heyman Capital Management's uh, Kyle Bass. Uh, he'll be sitting down with Juliana and Jumana later this morning at 10 a.m. CET. That's an important voice given all that's going on in the markets and in China as well. He has some strong views on China, so stay tuned uh, to CNBC for that. Coming up on Squawk Box this morning, SoftBank eyes a swing back to profit when it reports its first quarter earnings at 8 a.m. CED. We will break down the numbers as and when they hit the wires and bring you the earnings presentation as well. Plus, UK retail sales pull back as the Bank of England's chief economist says food prices are set to remain higher for the near future. Arabile Gomede joins us as we dive into the latest data. And that's not all on the earnings front. Asset manager Aberdeen posts uh, results for the first half of the year. We'll be hearing from the CEO Stephen Bird at 8 a.m. CET first on CNBC. All that lined up ahead on the show. Stay tuned.
Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. Quickly recapping the action in the U.S. markets overnight. Uh, it was a green screen across the board for all the three major averages for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq. We broke the four-day losing streak for both these indices. And for the Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, we are just 1% off its 52-week high. Remember, for all the three indices, we are trading above the 200-day moving average as well as the 50-day moving average, which just indicates that there's more upside potential than downside risk, a more support coming in for these markets at these levels and that's reflected in the way that wix as well the cboe fear gauge index cooled off uh, in the session overnight uh, treasury yields want to mark that for our viewers uh, well three weeks ago when i was tracking the move and i was reporting from london the gap between the two and the ten stood at 105 basis points how much can the world change in a matter of three weeks now the gap is going at sub 70 basis points 68 basis points with the curve really steepening you're looking at the two-year yield uh, uh, going at its highest level multi-month highs coming in there at 4.76 and for the 10-year we're circling around 4.04 even the 30-year index rather the 30-year bond has also hit some new levels of 4.21 so the long end of the yield curve uh, is something that the investors are selling into while the short end is being bought into dollar crosses then very quickly want to mark that for our viewers too what's that leading to in terms of um, the corresponding currencies obviously you're seeing a weaker yuan on the back of weaker domestic data at 7.22 the offshore rate is even weaker at 7. Point, uh, uh, actually this is the onshore rate at 7.20 the offshore rate is going at 7.22 uh, we're looking at uh, that weakness spillover into the yen as well at 143 and then for the euro dollar as well as sterling we are going at 1.09 and 1.27 wti and brent crude just want to mark commodities ahead of the session today and we are still uh, talking about 16 percent by way of gains for the month gone by brent and wti both soaring, uh, cooled off a little bit uh, through the last 10 days, but not a whole lot. Uh, like I said, we are looking at a promising return for this market uh, over the near term. Uh, Asian markets, and very quickly, we want to mark that for our viewers. So you have 20% uh, of uh, Japan's exports going out to China, 30% of Australia's exports going out to China. So if China goes down, uh, obviously, you know, you'll see uh, that effect being played out on the Hang Seng Index, but also the effect being felt on the currencies in, this, uh, in these respective regions and the markets uh, as well. I want to break it down and bring across the opening calls to you here in Europe. You're looking at a softish start for the markets here, CAC, DAX, FTSE as well as the FTSE MIB all down in the red. Karen. A time where U.S. credit card debt has hit $1 trillion, reaching the highest level on record after an almost $200 billion increase since the start of this year. This as credit card delinquency rates remain stubbornly high. The latest New York Fed data showing the number of consumers in serious delinquency rising to 4.5% from around 3% a year ago. Perhaps interesting data for those trying to work out what U.S. consumers will do down the track on those spending patterns. But worth noting, this uh, data on credit card defaults typically does track the unemployment rate, which, as we saw, remains very low at 3.5%. So the question is, if that unemployment rate rises, what happens to credit card delinquencies from here? Elsewhere, 
Bank of England Chief Economist Hugh Peel says UK food inflation will ease to around 10% at the end of this year. That is still well above levels consistent with the bank's inflation target of 2%. Peel warned a significant fall in food prices is a long way away and may not materialise at all and went on to say that overall inflation in the country remains much too high. Speaking of uh, retail sales in the region in the country, United Kingdom, UK retail sales rose 1.5% in July, by far the worst result of the year, according uh, to the British Retail Consortium. Arabili Gumede joins us uh, to break down the numbers and the trends here. Arabili, good morning. Yeah, good morning, guys. Look, this trend has actually been very significant to look at, and it really is in line with what we should be expecting, I suppose, from a tough economic climate. Karen, you posted a little bit earlier just or, or showed the credit card situation because consumers are beginning to feel the pinch of those higher interest rates. And it's also been played out in this space. So as we head towards the GDP number anticipated out on Friday, and as we take a look back then at the interest rate increase from the Bank of England to the highest since the 2008 financial crisis, this is what the UK retailer is seemingly looking at. Sales are lower in the month of July, according to the British Retail Consortium, the UK's largest trade, uh, retail trade association. They say that retail sales uh, managed to only gain 1.5%. I say only because that figure in the month of June was actually up 4.9%, so a big drop-off when one considers where it is. For May to July, food sales still the highest of the three that we're posting up here at 8.4%. But again, that figure was at 9.8% then uh, in the previous interpretation of this data. Non-food sales then dropping into negative territory. Why is that? Well, we're on the back of a July that has actually been damp in consideration when last year, the same month of July, was an actual heat wave. So, the wet weather means you don't have to restock on some of your summer clothing. So the retailers have unfortunately had to put in a lot more promotions in order to get consumers through the door. But more price conscious consumers are actually not returning or are being more frugal and a little bit more skeptical of what it is that they buy. Yes, consumer confidence has gotten better, particularly uh, when you take a look at how inflation has dropped off. But the problem with that is that it hasn't been sustainable enough that they've now become uh, optimistic on the other side of the scale. So not pessimistic, but still not optimistic enough to be able to say to themselves that they can actually go to the shops, particularly in the month of July. So things getting better, but not necessarily as better as they would like to. Karen? Arabella, I do remember you visiting a number of farms across the UK as we battle drought, but there are other big effects here too around the geopolitics and just looking at some of the prices of uh, some of the major soft commodities over the last uh, number of months. I mean, soybeans down 14 plus percent year to date, wheat prices down 17 percent year to date and corn over the same period down 26 percent. That said, we know that there's an issue with the grains deal with Russia at this point. So what lies ahead as we talk about a slight retreat or easing in prices? This retreat is likely to continue and it's not going to be on a positive tilt for consumers, right? Because what is going to happen then is that, yes, prices will slow, but because of what is already a tight credit situation or a tight consumer that may mean that prices will have to go even lower. That is also the supposition then coming through even from the IGD who are saying that fewer people who are experiencing rising energy bills compared to last year, they say 51% versus 68% in July 2020, 
2022. On the other side of the scale, though, here's the positive news, though. The IGD, the Institute for Gross and Redistribution, believes then that fewer shoppers will expect things to be financially worse off in the year ahead. So 37% versus 50%, whereas fewer shoppers are concerned about food price increases compared to a year ago, where only 68% of those that they spoke to are experiencing food prices going high over the year ahead versus 89% in July last year. So consumers have been resilient through this cost of living crisis, Karen. But one thing is for sure, though, that that resilience is being tested. We just saw those interest rates go up to the largest they have been since the 2008 financial crisis. At some point, that, I guess, is going to hurt consumers. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.